American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. History for jerks. History, history for jerks. Samantha, that's a hickey. Stranger came in and slit his throat with blood with blood. Terrible mess. I was covered in blood with blood with blood. Old people have boners in their bones. Covered in blood. Covered in blood. The smell of decomposition was obvious upon driving into the property. That's probably blood. blood. Get into the bathroom. What do you do? He shot on the bed. He shot on the bed. Shot on the bed. Covered in blood. Blood. Welcome back, American Timelines listeners, aka Tom Heads. This is episode 95 of American Timelines. I'm Amy. No, I'm Amy. I'm Amy. I'm Amy. I'm Amy. <laughs> that sounds weird. I'm Amy. All right. Amy's a stupid name. You know That's what? Amy, and I am made of brunch wagger. I'm Joe. Joe's an awesome name. Are you, are you trying to hurt my feelings? Yeah, maybe. Consider it then. Okay. Feelings hurt. Today we are talking Feelings about wounded. 1966. Correct. And it was a banner year, it turns out. A banner year? Why did you say that? I don't know what that means. Does no. that just mean it was a big year? No, that means it was a great year. You're saying. Oh, no. And we're I, about to talk about some horrible bunch of things. horrible shit. No, that's not what I meant then. Yeah. I meant it was a big year for lots of... There's just lots of news. I mean, it, the world was really, really changing at this time. The civil rights thing and, and the world, the sixties really was eventful. Like the world, it was like was a gateway. Changing. It was like the world was giving birth in the middle of giving birth to a new era. Yeah, and it, but it, that labor process is so painful. Well, and that's how I feel like. It's so weird how it parallels now, though. There's so many things going on now, like with the now, riots and yeah, and that maybe and we're giving birth again to a new era. A lot of people are protesting. A lot of things are changing. Maybe like, we are give, giving birth to a new era right now, and that's what the that's what's going on. I think we always are, though. Like, do you remember a time where it was just calm? That we're going to have an enlightenment period. Maybe we're, we're going to have an enlightenment soon. When was the previous enlightenment? Well, there's been different ones. After the but 60s, after the sixties, the seventies, yeah, was I mean, more enlightened. Well, the women's rights and um, birth control and um, Jimmy people Carter were just wearing more sweaters and yeah. Mm. Disco came out. Are we going to yeah. have another disco era? Maybe if we're lucky. Anyway, it took this. We're recording this just like probably the day before it's going to come out because we usually record a few days previously. Yes. It gives me we, time. Nobody but cares. Yeah, about this. Cares. There's the just a lot. Thing? There's a lot to research. And so I went back the end of last episode. We just rushed through some things that yes. I didn't get time to do. Right. And so I just checked back to see if any of it was interesting enough that I should cover. Okay. And turns out the Huff riots were really, I feel like, important and really um, sort of indicative of this era. Okay. And so there's a lot of research. There's a lot of articles published on a lot of things. And it really reflects what was going on in the north in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. It was outside of Cleveland, the Huff riots. <clears throat> and so we'll start there um, with, two. I think it's Tuesday. It started, it was several days. Hold on. It started on a, oh, Monday, July 18th, 1966. Mm -hmm. Now, bear with me. I have a lot about this. So <clears throat> if it, I tried to cut as much as I could, that was just like... Mm -hmm. Superfluous. Superfluous, if I could, but a lot of it was part of the story, and a lot of it was yeah, uh, meaningful. So, um, and it sort of explained the race. So there, it was a race riot. On the last episode, I just said, "Oh, the Huff race yeah. riots." It was a race riot. Now we all know what a race riot is, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But do we really know like what went into it? A lot of it, reading through it, a lot of it really sounds like that neighborhood and. Um, uh, Do you ever watch "Do the Right Thing"? Spike mm -hmm. Lee. Yeah. And isn't that the one where uh, Radio Raheem? That's that, Thank God for the right nipple. Thank God for the left nipple. Uh, we might be thinking of a different movie. That's the same movie. Is is Radio Raheem the one with yeah. "Do the Right Thing" where yeah. he gets killed? Okay. Yeah. You remember something about nipples? I remember <laughs> that guy died, but it's like when that guy got killed, like it was frustrations. Yeah. They were white and black people that worked together and lived together. Mm-hmm. And tensions would rise, but right. they just boiled over at that yeah. point. Um, 
So a so lot is, of this is Huff a neighborhood. Yeah, Huff is a neighborhood outside of Cleveland that uh, became a predominantly African American community in the '60s. Okay. And during these riots, went from the 18th all the way to the 23rd. And during the riots, four African Americans were killed and 50 people were injured. There were 275 arrests and numerous incidents of arson and fire bombings. And city officials at first tried to blame black nationalists mm-hmm. and communist organizations for the riots, saying they were organized and they were mm-hmm. really... Um, they always to, go to that first. They always go to that first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always the liberal groups and the horrible, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but historians generally dismiss all those claims, uh, arguing that the Huff riots were uh, primarily... Uh, that the cause was primarily poverty and racism and segregation, and it just kind of boiled over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the riots caused rapid population loss and economic decline in the area, which lasted at least five decades after the riots. Um, wow. So, so everybody moved the fuck out. Yeah, after this, because it was, it was just like, it, well, businesses got destroyed. Yeah. And, like, and people just had, they lost everything. Because that's the a business, long time to riot. Yeah, for three or four days, they destroyed, every, looted everything. How many days was the riot? Uh, this, it was the 18th to the 23rd. Wow. So like five days of just chaos. And eventually the police couldn't do anything. They had to call in the National Guard and everything. So uh, during the 50s, middle-class whites largely left that neighborhood, Mm -hmm. the neighborhood of Huff, uh, and working-class African-Americans moved in, which is kind of how it happens in neighborhoods like that. It kind of changes. By 1966, more than 66,000 people, nearly 90% of them African-American, lived in Huff. Mm Mm-hmm. 90% 90% African American. Most businesses in the area remained white owned though. Oh. So and then the police were white. And so it's kind yeah. of this you know. Yeah. You know people always say nowadays. It's a like, mini Jim Crow kind of thing or yeah. something. Yeah. People say now a lot of times the police forces in towns should reflect the citizens. Yeah. The same kind of thing with Ferguson. Ferguson was like patrol mm-hmm. white, white people, people are patrolling these black neighborhoods and it's they just feel like they're being like it's just modern day slavery type of thing. Yep. Um, residents of the neighborhood complained extensively of inferior and racially segregated public schools, poor delivery of welfare benefits, a lack of routine garbage collection, no street cleaning, and too few housing inspections. Uh, recreational facilities did not exist there except for a, a couple playgrounds, and that's it. It was a small area, but the population density in the neighborhood was one of the highest in Cleveland. Housing was often substandard. A fifth of all housing units were considered dilapidated, and absentee landlords, most of them white, were common. Mm-hmm. Um, out of 2,100 police officers in the Cleveland area, only 165 were African American. The city routinely declined to promote black patrolmen, and the police had a reputation for exhibiting, exhibiting crude racism and mm-hmm. ignoring the needs of the black community. So a lot of times I, you know, my head just goes to, well, we just need more black police. Why don't we have more black police? Mm-hmm. It's not for the lack of trying. It's for racism. You know? Yeah, so that's right. Even that's that's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the, it's a good old boy, good old white boys club and it'd be hard to be a black police officer in that kind of hostile oh, work yeah. environment. Yep. Um, so the African-American protests in the past had been small and died out swiftly and uh, progress was slow. The school protests were Cleveland's first large lengthy racial protests and the failure to achieve significant progress taught the black community that negotiation and legal action produce only limited results. So they just felt helpless at this point. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, the, the the few black uh, count, city council members that there were seemed too conservative and out of touch uh, with most African-Americans. Employment discrimination, police brutality, poor housing, school segregation, all this. So Yeah, so it's a shithole. Yeah, and so this all started at the 79ers Cafe, which is on 79th Street and Huff Avenue. Mm-hmm. It was a white-owned bar uh, popular with African-American residents of the community. Uh, 79ers suffered from a number of problems, including drug dealing, the sale of stolen goods, and prostitution. And the owners, the owners were Jewish, and they'd begun 
barring certain individuals of the establishment. Mm -hmm. Local prostitutes, Margaret Sullivan and her friend Louise, an African-American, I'm assuming Margaret was white, they were among those who had been banned. So Sullivan died on July 16th. Mm-hmm. leaving three young children. And on July 17th, Louise, her friend, also a prostitute, attempted to leave a box at the bar so patrons could donate money for the care of Sullivan's children. The owners refused to permit the collection, uh, and Louise returned about 5 p.m. on Monday, July 18th, and the owners argued with her, alleging allegedly using defam- defamatory and racist language as she was thrown out. Yeah. And then a short while later, another sort of, racially charged incident happened and when a, a black man came in and want, bought a bottle of liquor mm-hmm. uh, but he he asked for a glass of water they refused to give him a glass yeah. of water whatever it is and he got all mad mm-hmm. um, according to a book um, an excerpt from a book that was in Cleveland Magazine mm-hmm. an excerpt from a, the book is by Michael D. Roberts uh, the book is called Hot Hot type cold beer and bad news. Mm-hmm. And this was a reporter that covered uh, these no water for n- mm-hmm. and on it. I can't say that. Man. No water for N words. It's you can't whitewash history. Yeah, I know. It's just hard to say it. Okay, so the black guy who right was refused the water. Yeah, wrote no water for n- on a brown paper bag mm-hmm. and covered up their sign, their open and closed sign, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and put it outside the, the store. Um, and then that pissed everybody off and they started writing. Yeah. Now, it in one interview with a plane dealer, the owners said they weren't even there during that incident. So, And they denied that one of their employees d- it, denied this guy water. So it's like he said, she said. Mm-hmm. But it had to start somewhere. It had right. to come out of nowhere. Somehow, yeah. somebody put that sign on the, on the thing. Um, so about an hour after that incident, allegedly, the 79ers Cafe was robbed. A crowd of angry Afri- African-Americans, some bar patrons, and some residents gathered around the bar. The Feigenbaums, or the owners, said they received a report that the establishment had been robbed about 8 p.m., and, and they arrived about 8.20. They claimed a crowd of about 300 people had already gathered outside the bar and began throwing rocks at the windows once the owners had gone inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abe Fe- Abe Feigenbaum then said he went outside with a 44 caliber Ruger Model 44 rifle in his hands, followed by his brother Dave armed with a pistol. Mm-hmm. A rock-throwing stop, they said, but resumed when they went back inside. After full, four calls to the police for help went unanswered, the Feigenbaums called the fire department in desperation and fled the cafe. So that was the thing. You call the police and they wouldn't come mm-hmm. to this area. Mm-hmm. They just stopped coming to this area. So right. it was a help, helpless area. Um, so they tried to, the fire department. Um, about 8.30 p.m., the crowd, which included youths, adults, and even senior citizens, began to move down Huff Avenue, looting stores and setting fires as it went. The crowd now attempted to burn down the bar, but the attempt failed. At 9.11 p.m., the Cleveland Division of Fire arrived, uh, and they claimed they be- they came under small arms fire. Worried fire officials notified the Cleveland police of the large crowd, and the police finally arrived at 9.30. Mm-hmm. When the first contingent of 75 police arrived at 9.30, the crowd began throwing rocks at them. And initially, about 200 rioters roamed over a 30-square block area centered on Huff Avenue. Police first came under fire shortly before 10 p.m. After returning fire and lobbing tear gas gas grenades onto buildings, roofs to clear out the gunmen. The police responded by sending more than 300 additional officers to the area. They fanned out throughout the neighborhood, but came under attack as rioters threw bricks and bottles at them. The police responded by launching tear grass grenades, and now we have a riot on our hands. Right. Um, uh, police Captain Richard Sherry called the scene sheer bedlam. Rioters grabbed tear gas grenades and threw them back at the police, hurling Molotov cocktails and destroying police vehicles. At one point, police were briefly pinned down by sniper fire. Police sealed off eight blocks around Huff Avenue in an attempt to contain the violence, and a police helicopter was used to direct the police towards suspected gunmen on top of buildings and reports of incidents of looting. Police initially shot out streetlights and later were forced to bring in searchlights to illuminate dark streets and alleys. Idiots. Searching for rioters and gunmen. Yep. 
What idiots. The Cleveland Division of Fire responded to numerous small God, what fires. a nightmare would be to be in this. Oh, just to be in there. And where can you yeah. get your helpless? Yeah. And if you live there, if you were yeah. a person just trying to get by and get better yeah. in your life, where can you go? Yep. You are in hell. Mm-hmm. And they're stuck there. Like and you're they, trapped. And the business yeah. owners, too. Like, I feel bad for everyone. Like, the business owners, they had a business there. They've been running it for years. Yeah. You can't just pick up and move a business and you're in the middle of this. Hell. Then again, maybe you shouldn't be racist towards people that come in and want water. No, no. I'm not I'm saying that business. I'm saying the other business owners because right. all of the business owners yeah. lost everything. There were, uh, there were black business owners, too. Yeah. Lost everything. Right. So anybody, if you owned your business, that's part of town. Or if you live there, mm-hmm. these poor black people that live there can't get out. Um, it, I mean, it's just a terrible situation. I mean, the, I mean, the poor black people that had to have these horrible schools and all this awful stuff and not nobody picking up your garbage and everything all this oh yeah is bad um but people were shooting at the firefighters um uh, a mob of 100 people seized control of a fire pumper at one point uh, uh largely the rioting largely died down after a heavy thunderstorm struck that area about midnight and gunfire ended about 1 a.m Joyce Arnett, a 26-year-old African-American mother of three, was shot in the head by an unidentified gunman when she leaned out a window just to look at what was going on. Uh, African-American man Alton Burks was shot in the hip. An African-American man Wallace Kelly was shot in the jaw by unidentified gunman as well. A white man and wife, the Nopwaskis, were hit by rocks while riding a public bus and also suffered minor injuries. Another five civilians were shot but only lightly injured, and three were injured by rocks and bottles, while 12 policemen were injured, although one slightly. Ten buildings were destroyed by fire, and 53 African Americans, most of them teenagers, were arrested on day one. Wow. Then on July 19th, uh, Cleveland Mayor uh, Loker, mm-hmm. I didn't get his first, I had his first name, but I That's fine. edited it out. Uh, he asked Governor James A. Rhodes to send in 1,500 National Guardsmen. Governor Rhodes declared a state of emergency in Cleveland. They ordered all bars and cafes in the Huff neighborhood closed. This marked the first time the Ohio National Guard had been mobilized to counter a racial incident. Most African-American residents of Cleveland believed Loker to be completely out of touch with the black community, mm-hmm. and the rioting spread outside the Huff neighborhood on the night of on the nights of so July 19th worse. through 20th. Yep, the guard and snipers and jeeps were all over. During the night, arsonists attacked abandoned houses and commercial buildings, setting 67 fires. Firefighters were able to respond finally without being attacked. Another death occurred on July 19th when 36-year-old African-American Percy Giles was shot in the back of the head by a sniper uh, about 8.30 p.m. Another man, 26-year-old Mallory Richardson, was shot in the leg uh, at about 10 p.m., and 39-year-old Paul Richardson was grazed in the yard by gunfire at 10.30 p.m. while standing outside near his home on 79th Street. And all 60 people were arrested that night. July 20th, during the day, uh, the mayor spoke to Vice President Hubert Humphrey and asked for the federal government's assistance, assistance in rebuilding Huff after the riots. A group of African-American clergy asked the President of the United States to to declare Huff a disaster area mm-hmm. so that it could qualify for federal relief. In separate press conferences, the mayor and the Cleveland safety director started to claim that outsiders were the cause of all this stuff. The U.S. Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach laughed at McCormick's claims, so they knew that it wasn't these groups coming in. Mm-hmm. By the morning of July 20th, 1,700 National Guardsmen were in Cleveland. 1,700. Wow. Firebombing and vandalism occurred, kept occurring. Throughout the day and night, Cleveland firefighters continued to respond to blazes, although they moved in convoys and were protected by National Guardsmen armed with rifles and machine guns. Seven teenagers were arrested during daylight hours, six of them for looting. Extensive rioting began again in Huff after dark. As night fell, a series of uh, National Guard police guard posts were established in Huff when a large crowd gathered at Stephen E. Howell Elementary School where clergyman Bruce Clunder had died in 1964, protesting against segregation in Cleveland schools. Mm-hmm. So I read about this through reading all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So in 64, um, these protesters were surrounding the bulldozers so they couldn't destroy the school. Mm-hmm. And this reverend was laying behind it. Mm-hmm. And the guy in the bulldozer was didn't know he was back there. And he was trying to avoid the people in front of him. So the he, rolled over, he him? rolled over him and killed him. Jeez. Um, 
That's a b- bad way to go. Yeah. So that and that and they got graphic pictures of it and all was over oh, the news. God. So this this elementary school became like a gathering place, like a an important place for protesters to to show up. Um, so when they gathered there, law enforcement officials stationed about a hundred and police guardsmen around the school and on its roof to prevent prevent it from being burned down. Mm-hmm. Uh, military vehicles were stationed at every other intersection along the entire 50-block length of Huff Avenue, and three guardsmen were posted at every intersection. Police and National Guard continued to patrol the riot zones, the riot zone on Jeeps with 30-caliber machine guns mm-hmm. uh, and a police helicopter used to identify where mobs were. Uh, throughout the night, police and firefighting personnel were harassed by hundreds of false alarms, which tended to disperse their forces and allow crowds to form in other places and continue rioting and looting. Police later said that most of the reports of gunfire was inaccurate and said it was people lighting firecrackers to distract oh. police. Mm-hmm. So it was, there's just all this chaos going right. on. Um, that excerpt in the Cleveland Magazine that I told you about mm-hmm. by that author, uh, he talks about going into some businesses during the day during this time. And uh, black-owned businesses were putting up signs saying, this is a black-owned business, please don't destroy it. Still getting destroyed. I mean, really? Looters didn't care. Didn't it was care. just like everything else. Um, and so there, he had he witnessed uh, black kids laughing at business owners who were upset and crying, and then uh, older black people coming and scolding them about, what are you doing this for? Now we're going to have nothing. We're going to have no businesses. Yeah. Stop this. You kids need to learn, you know, kind of thing. So he, he, he saw all kinds of it. It wasn't just... Right. Black and white, you know, it was young people being stupid and mm-hmm. things like that, too. Um, a crappy racist reporter named Doris O'Donnell mm-hmm. started reporting in The Plain Dealer that a hate whitey revolution plotted and predicted for many months by a small band of extremists was a real cause of the riots. Oh, my God. Um, she reported that the police, city hall, and unnamed federal agencies had extensive evidence that points to certain groups and certain individuals as the suspected plotters behind the riots. And she she reported that black activists told her that certain businesses had been told to place a sign in the windows or on their front doors as a signal not to firebomb the place, and that agitator, agitators had worked up lists of businesses to be destroyed. Uh, quoting unnamed black residents, she said that... Uh, they had an, a black army and all these things. Jeez. Oh, uh, she placed the blame. So that's probably where most of the public thought. Oh yeah, she, she placed the blame for the riots on welfare, which encouraged women to have large numbers of illegitimate children and allow unemployed husbands to sponge off their welfare-supported wives. Oh yeah, I know. And so none of her. She had no evidence of anything. It was just ridiculous. Yeah, like um, welfare is enough. Yeah, for anybody to live on. Major General Irwin C. Hostetler of the Ohio National Guard issued an order authorizing his troops to shoot looters and arsonists. But about 3 a.m., 29-year-old African-American Benoris Tony was shot in the head in the parking lot of the Doherty Lumber Co. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony had been traveling on Euclid Avenue, according to police eyewitnesses. Another vehicle began to parallel him. Tony pulled into the parking lot where police had been stationed all night long, and the other vehicle followed him. The men in the second vehicle then shot Tony twice with a shotgun through the open window of Tony's automobile. The assailant's vehicle then sped away. Police gave chase and stopped it, arresting six white adults and teenagers. Tony died on the afternoon of July 23rd. So good, they arrested him. Yep. Shortly after the... But they let... Most of them off eventually, anyway, probably. Shortly after the Tony killing, a crowd of about 125 white people gathered at the foot of Murray Hill in the Little Italy neighborhood on the far eastern border of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was the site of a riot in January of 64, and worried Cleveland police dispersed the crowd as swiftly as they could. Uh, Another murder occurred at 4 a.m. when 50-year-old African-American Sam Winchester was shot on the corner of 116th and Regalia Avenue, as he lied dying in an ambulance, he claimed a white male shot him from an automobile. Finally, July 23rd, the night of July 23rd and 24th, saw the rioting largely end. No roving gangs were seen in the expanded patrol area. The Cleveland Division of Fire responded about five alarms an hour, and the number of fi- fire alarms in the Huff area was actually below normal for an average night. Calm continued Sunday morning, and then Cleveland was drenched with heavy rains on the afternoon of July 24th, which kept most people indoors. Total number of those killed in riots was four. The total number of injured was fifty. 
On July 26th, the first 528 National Guard troops left Huff, and the remainder withdrew to camps around the city. Withdrawals continued until the last 800 troops left on July 31st. And so it finally died out. Wow. But, uh... Well, thanks for listening, folks. That, that was great? another episode. That was of- a horrible <laughs> episode, yeah. So I'll have I'll edit a lot of that out. No, that's fine. But um, no, that was interesting. That but was it good. was just like it, it just lets you see how it starts over just an incident, like. But it's really not about that one incident. That's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, it's finally. I mean, it's the tensions rising and how mm-hmm. everybody feels already. It's it's never good to have an area so segregated like that and so. You so know, underserved and underserved so impoverished. And all the white people own everything, and they're the police and yeah, the poor people. Awful. And they're like, especially a bar like that, they're just making the money off people getting misery and everything, probably, mm-hmm. and just treating them bad. It's like, I don't know. I yeah, I know. It's awful. July twenty ninth, nineteen sixty six. Bob Dylan is injured in a motorcycle accident near his home in Woodstock, New York. Oh, and he's not seen in public for over a year. Wow. Nobody really knows what caused the wreck. Dylan was followed by his new wife, uh, Sarah Lowndes, Mm -hmm. after leaving his manager, Albert Grossman's house in nearby West Saugerties. Nailed it. Dylan later told biographer Robert Shelton that an oil slick caused him to lose control. But according to playwright Sam Shepard, Dylan said the sun blinded him and he got thrown by the bike. Apparently, Bob Dylan was, was... inseparable from his motorcycle before this oh like really never seen without he loved it whatever happened the crash ended up cracking a vertebrae and giving dylan some serious road rash road i thought you were going to say uh roadhead roadhead nope he didn't get roadhead <laughs> when he crashed his motorcycle just road rash uh with the whole thing shrouded in secrecy the rumor mill went berserk fans churned out gossip to place dylan somewhere between dead and suffering permanent brain damage among other things, the crash forced Dylan to cancel his. What if he sounds like he does? Maybe. Like maybe he sang clearly and then. Maybe he's, he had, he had an awesome yeah, voice. Yeah. yeah, maybe. And among other things, uh, it forced him to cancel his upcoming Yale Bowl performance, as well as another tour that. Uh, another tour that his manager forced him to do. Dylan took it a step further and retreated altogether from life as a rock star and into the bosom of a quiet living with his young family. For the past five years, the grueling tours, cutting one album after the next, the mad rush of dealing with the press and crazed fans and the cyclonic cyclonic pace of celebrity had taken its toll. Dylan was ready for some domestic bliss. Where'd you paste that from? I don't know. <laughs> it, oh, it was, it was from his memoir, Chronicles. Oh, okay. Uh, he wrote, I had been in a motorcycle accident. I had been hurt, but I recovered. Truth was that I wanted to get All out right. of the rat race. Having children challenged my life and segregated me from just about everybody and everything that was going on. Outside of my All family. All right, stop. You've got to stop that. Yeah, outside of my family, nothing held any real interest for me, and I was seeing everything through different glasses, he said. Okay. So he enjoyed being away from everything, so he just kind of kept s- it kept it going, I guess. Yeah, why not? Do what you want to do, is what I say. And that brings us to August 1st, 1966, when sniper yes. Charles Whitman kills 13 people. Y'all, exciting. Killing, murdering. Okay, so the eldest of three brothers raised... Oops. Oh, you Will didn't you give me dates for this one, you know. All right, we'll do it on the fly. The eldest of three brothers raised on South L Street in Lake Worth, Florida. Charles Whitman, who had scored 138 on an IQ test at the age of six. Really? Is that uh, high? Yes. Atten- at the age of six? Yeah. Attended St. Anne's High School in Palm Beach, where he was a pitcher on the school's baseball team. He also took Ooh, five years of piano lessons. All three brothers. So, wait, this sounds like he's a well rounded person that is mm-hmm. not going to do anything wrong. All three brothers served as altar boys at Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church, and Whitman chose the confirmation name Joseph for himself. As a 12-year-old, he was among the youngest ever to achieve Eagle Scout. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He chose the confirmation name Joseph? Yes. How does that work? You can just pick any name? I I don't know. I'm not Catholic. (laughs) When Whitman was 14 and still an altar boy, his scout leader, Joseph LeDuc, completed completed seminary and served as the priest of Sacred Heart for a month. LeDuc, who later became a confidant of Whitman, was a family friend who had accompanied Whitman and his father on several hunting trips. At the age of 16, Whitman underwent a routine appendectomy and was hospitalized following a motorcycle accident. Oh, 
Was it the same one as Bob Dylan? Yeah, I think that was. <laughs> I think it was. Oh. They were on the there's motorcycle one, together. There's only one motorcycle accident. Yep. Against his father's wishes, Whitman joined the Marines on July 6th, 1959. The same day that John Keeble was born? <laughs> A London rock drummer? Oh, then the same day that, oh, the fifth LPGA championship was won by Betsy Rawls? Yes. That same day? That day. He ex- he explained to Father LeDuc that he had come home drunk several weeks earlier, and his father had hit him repeatedly and pushed oh. him into the family swimming pool. Well, I guess it serves right for being drunk, coming yep. home drunk. While Whitman was aboard a train headed toward Marine Corps Re- Recruit Depot, Paris Island, yeah. his father telephoned some branch of federal government to have his son's enlistment canceled. Oh. But that did not work. It some branch? Happen. He just called some random branch? Some branch. That was a quote. Some branch of federal government. He couldn't remember. Following his enlistment, Whitman was accepted into the University of Texas's mechanical engineering program with a scholarship. Oh, his hobbies go good. Hobbies at this point included karate, scuba diving, and hunting. Oh, those are well-rounded things. The last hobby got him in trouble at the university. Oh, the hunting? Yes, when he was involved in a quote-unquote teenage prank in which he shot a deer, dragged it to his dormitory, and skinned it in his shower. Well, at least he didn't have sex with it. Yeah, that we know of. No, he might have. As a result of both this incident and substandard grades, his scholarship was withdrawn in 1963. Um, Have you ever seen somebody skin a deer? No. Gross. Remember we had a neighbor? Oh, that's right. We had a neighbor one time that would skin a deer in his yard. He would leave it hanging in his front yard. Yeah, and he would leave all the legs just laying on the ground. and so gross. One time, something... Must have grabbed one of the deer legs and tried to drag it under my porch. No, uh, that was a different time. University Lane was the one where the guy would skin the the oh. hunters. No, I'm talking about in Portage. The guy on oh. the other side of Mike. Oh, really? That guy would do in the backyard. Remember the guy you saw beating a dog that oh, time? Oh, that's right. Jesus. He would hang a deer. We lived in such a shit hole. I'd listen to the sound of this. Yeah, rural Ohio. No, we live in the South, and a lot of people make a lot of jokes about the South and how backwards it is, but there's nothing more rural than Wood County, Ohio. More gross backwards things happen to us in Wood County, Ohio. Yep, something drugged that deer leg under our porch. Yeah, so there was, at one point, I looked outside, and I had a porch, a screened-in porch, and there was a deer leg sticking out sticking out from under the porch like the deer mo- was laying under yeah, there and, I, I, and it was really wedged in there and yeah. i looked at it and i was like that can't be i there can't be a a deer under there, there. Can't be a, de- <laughs> the, a deer couldn't get under the house could it like how, yeah how, how was the hell deer- was that and then i looked and as it got closer real slowly because i was like no. i don't want to see a live deer like yeah whatever un- was going somehow on. under the how was how, it even under there like Wizard of Oz, the house yeah, fell on it. Yeah, or it was something. like it fell on it. His leg was really wedged under there. And so I started pulling on the leg, and it was in there really good. Gross. It was really wedged. So something pulled that deer yep. leg and was gnawing it, hiding it, it, I guess. Hiding it, like taking Ugh, it under so there. so sick. I'm so glad I didn't have to do that. I must have had raccoons or something under there, huh? What was under there? If I lived there by f- myself when that had happened, the next people that inherited that house would have also inherited that because I would not have moved it. You would have moved that. You know Ugh. what? I wonder if we should disclose this to the people that bought that house. Well, maybe because it's haunted by that deer leg. Well, just that. Something's bringing deer legs under the house. Yeah. Of course, this that's we sold. Maybe it, it was a chupacabra. <gasps> oh. oh my God! It's a chupacabra. It could be a chupacabra. Honey. We could, you know, I should. So if you're listening, Jim and, uh, <laughs> and Michelle, I think that was their names. Uh, Fitzgerald. That's yeah. Names. Yeah. If you're listening, hey, thanks for buying our house uh, and buying Sorry us beer. Sorry about the, the haunted deer leg. Sorry about the haunted deer leg. Anyway, and the sinkholes. <laughs> and the sinkholes. That we, <laughs> I try to cover up with cabbage. <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to Charles Whitman. Um, okay, so in August of 1962, Whitman married Kathleen Francis Leisner. Wait a minute. Another University of Texas student in a wedding that was held in Kathy's hometown of Needville, Texas. Needville? Yes. August 1962? Yes. You mean the same month that uh, Patrick Ewing was born? Yes. The following year, he returned to active duty at a Marine Corps base camp, Lejeune, in North Carolina. Legume? Lejeune, I think. Oh, a legume is a peanut, is a no, nut, No, it's not right? that. Lejeune. You know that August 1962 Lejeune. is also the same time that Jamaica became independent. 
where he was both promoted to Lance Corporal and involved in an accident in which his Jeep rolled over an embankment. Oh, after after good. rescuing his pinned comrade, Whitman was hospitalized for four days. That November, Whitman was court-martialed for gambling, possessing a personal firearm on base, and threatening another Marine. Wait, why can't you over oh, a thirty-dollar a... loan for which Whitman demanded fifteen dollars interest? Uh, I wouldn't want interest. You can't have a personal. You can't have personal yeah. firearms. Yeah, I would think just all firearms are fine. Mm-hmm. He was sentenced to thirty days of confinement and ninety days of hard labor, and was demoted to the rank of private. Confinement. Yeah. In December 1964, Whitman was honorably discharged from the Marines and returned to the University of Texas. Now, he didn't have a scholarship, so he worked as a bill collector for Standard Finance Company and then later as a bank teller. Okay. By 1965, he had taken a temporary job with Central Freight Lines and was working as a traffic surveyor. He also volunteered as a scoutmaster. Oh, that's not creepy While at Kathy all. worked as a biology teacher. Now, now that's it right there. Scoutmaster. This is the first weird thing he's done. The Whitman family had a long history of dysfunctionality. By 1966, Whitman's mother, Margaret, had announced she was divorcing his father. Oh. So Whitman drove to Florida to help his mother move to Austin, Texas, where she found work in a cafeteria. Oh, cafeteria is a nice place to work. The move um, prompted his younger brother, John, to move out as well. And then his brother Patrick decided to continue living with their father, whose plumbing business employed him. Oh, well, you got to work for dad, so you might as well live with dad. So Whitman's dad began to telephone him several times a week, asking him to convince mom to give him another chance in the marriage. You mean call? But Whitman refused. He would call every once yes. in a while or telephone? He would phone him. Phone, phone him? home. In 1966, Whitman discussed his depression with university's Dr. Jan Cochran, who prescribed Valium, Recommended he visit campus psychiatrist Maurice Dean Heatley. She seems like an above-board doctor. On March 29th, 1966. Oh, we talked about this. The same day that the 23rd Communist Party Conference was held in the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and Brezhnev demanded that U.S. troops leave Vietnam, and the same day that uh, Eric Gunderson was born, the baseball player... On that day, he met with Heatley, the psychiatrist, and he spent an hour talking about his frustration with his parents' separation and his increasing strains at work and school. Yeah. During the interview, he made a remark about feeling the urge to start shooting people with a deer rifle from the university tower. Oh, my gosh. Heatley noted that Whitman was oozing with hostility, yet never returned. Whitman mentioned the visit with Heatley in his final suicide note, saying it was to no avail. So while he's venting about that... uh, Rob Thomas, former NFL receiver for the Tampa Buccaneers, was also being born. God, I'm going to kill myself. Why? All right. By the summer, Whitman was prescribed Dexedrine. Oh, Dexedrine is a nice drug. Although, no side effects. Although Whitman had been prescribed drugs, the autopsy could not establish if he had consumed any prior to the attacks. Oh, they couldn't figure that out. Huh? Usually they can. However, it was revealed during the autopsy that he had a cancerous glioblastoma tumor in the hypothalamus region of his brain. Where's the hypothalamus region of your brain? Somewhere up there. Do you have any idea? Some have theorized that it may have been pressed against the nearby amygdala, which can affect emotive passion. Oh, yeah. If you get the amygdala... If you don't get, you don't want your amygdala nope. pinched. This has led some neurologists to speculate that his medical condition was in some way responsible for the attacks. Yeah, good on you, neurologists. So Father Leduc met with Whitman for the last time two months before the shootings and okay. said that Whitman had confided that he had lost his faith and no longer considered himself a practicing Catholic. Now, just because you don't have faith doesn't mean you're going to shoot everybody. After the attacks... A study of Whitman's journal showed him lamenting that he had acted violently towards Kathy and that he was resolved both not to follow his father's abusive example and to be a good husband. Yeah, good, good. So he's on the right path again and nothing's going to happen. However, John and Fran Morgan, who are close friends, they later told the Department of Public Safety that he had confided in them that he had struck Kathy on three occasions. Oh. So the day before the shootings... Don't hit Kathy. Whitman... (laughs) Purchased binoculars and a knife from Davis's Hardware. No, just because you purchase binoculars and a knife doesn't make you guilty. As well as spam from a 7-Eleven store. Okay, that makes you guilty. He then picked up Kathy from her summer job as a bell operator. And I hope he doesn't hit her. And they went to a matinee. Wait, she's a what operator? Bell operator. Oh, bell operator, like Be- a phone. Yep. They went to a matinee before meeting his mother for lunch at her job. I wonder what show they saw. Around 4 o'clock p.m., they went to visit friends John and Fran Morgan, who okay. lived in the same neighborhood. And were attractive. They nice, l- attractive couple. Yeah. 
they left at approximately 5.30 so that Kathy could leave for her 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock shift that night. At 6.45, Whitman began typing his suicide note, a portion of which read, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started. I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. Now, the note explained oh. that he had decided to murder both his mother and his wife. Oh, my gosh. This, but, so he wrote it before he did it. Mm-hmm. But it made no mention of the coming attacks at the university. Oh, boy. This evening has taken a turn. He also requested that an autopsy be done after his death to determine if there had been anything to explain his actions and increasing headaches. Yes. He willed any money from his estate to mental health research, saying he hoped it would prevent others from following his route. Oh, my gosh. Just after midnight, he killed his mother, Margaret. The exact oh. method is disputed, but it seems he had rendered her unconscious before stabbing her in the heart. He <sighs> returned to the suicide note, now writing by hand. Now I wrote more. Okay, the first part was typed, and now yes. it's handwritten. To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I'm very upset over having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, she's definitely there now. I'm truly sorry. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love this woman with all my heart. Huh. Yeah, something's... That's crazy. Whitman returned to his home at 906 Jewel Street and stabbed Kathy five times as she slept naked, leaving another Uh. note that read, I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick job, quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. I don't think you get the insurance if you murder. Uh, did he, in any of these notes, did he mention what show they saw in the mandate? No. Okay. He wrote notes to each of his... Maybe it was that show. Like maybe that show was so bad, it, it just put him over just, the edge. Yeah, could be. He wrote notes to each of his brothers and his father and left instructions in the apartment that the two canisters of film he left on the table should be developed. Man, it's just the, like yeah. urged to kill by a something wrong in his head. At 5.45 a.m. on August 1st, Whitman phoned Kathy's supervisor at Bell to explain she was sick and couldn't make her shift that day. August 1st, the same day that the Craft Summer Music Hall was on? Yes. And Vacation Playhouse was on? Where's Where there's Smokey? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he made a similar phone call to Margaret's workplace after five hours, about five hours later. He rented a dolly from Austin Rental Company and cashed yeah. $250 worth of checks at the bank huh. before returning to Davis's Hardware and purchasing an M1 carbine explaining he wanted to go hunting for wild hogs. Don't you want, don't you wonder like while he's doing all these things, buying things and like building up all this like he's just mm-hmm. murdered a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Like if you were at the stores and seeing this guy, would you be like, "Well, there's something wrong with that guy." Oh, just wait. We'll get to it. Or did he just Just you oh, wait. Okay. He also went to Sears and purchased a shotgun in the green rifle case. Sears Roebuck after sawing off the shotgun barrel while chatting with postman Chester Arrington. What? So he's just talking to the postman while he's sawing off a shotgun? Yes. Whitman packed it together with a Remington 700 bolt-action hunting rifle and a 4X loophole scope, the M1 carbine, a 6mm Remington rifle, three pistols, and various other equipment stowed between a wooden crate and his marine footlocker. All while the post office yeah. guy's there? sitting there chit-chatting. The postman doesn't think it's weird? <laughs> Yeah, what are you doing there, buddy? Hey, uh, Phil, well, this I was weather. thinking about the other day when I was trimming my mustache. Yeah. Um, oh, well, you got, a, well, you got that scope on that, right? Oh, boy, you sure got a lot of ammo on a big yeah. arsenal there, yep. buddy. So anyway, uh, sometimes I wipe backwards. Before heading to the tower, he put khaki coveralls on over his shirt and jeans and under a green jacket. Once in the tower, he also donned a white sweatband. Okay, in Push- case he starts sweating. Yep. Pushing the rented dolly carrying his equipment, he met security guard Jack Rodman and and obtained a parking pass, claiming he had a delivery to make and showing Rodman a card identifying him as a research assistant for the school. I got to deliver all these weapons of mass destruction. He entered the main building shortly after 11.30 a.m., where he struggled with the elevator until employee Vera Palmer informed him it had not been powered on and turned it on for him. Oh, I'll help you murder everyone. He thanked her and took the elevator to the top floor of the tower just beneath the clock face. He then lugged his trunk up three flights of stairs to the observation deck area, where he found a receptionist named Edna Townsley. He knocked her unconscious with the butt of his rifle. Oh, I thought Edna Townsley was going to save the day. He concealed her body beneath the couch. She later died from her injuries. Poor Edna Townsley. Moments later, Cheryl Botts and Don Walden, a young couple who had been sightseeing on the deck, returned to the attendance area, encountered Whitman... Who was holding a rifle in each hand. Oh, no. Botts later claimed she believed the large red stain on the floor was varnish. 
Whitman and the young couple spoke briefly, and the couple left the room. They were just talking to the guy with two guns. Oh, no big deal. Oh, is that varnish over there and those guts? Uh, what yeah. are those? Where, when they were gone, Whitman barricaded the stairway. Oh, my God. At least they got away. So shortly afterwards, two families of tourists were on their way up the stairs when they encountered that barricade. I mean, think about it, though. Imagine if you were that those people that encountered the barricade or those people that saw him with two yeah. rifles and then later... We just walked past that guy. Yep. Like he could have killed us. So um, Michael Gabor was one of his families in this family of tourists. He was attempting to look beyond the barricade when Whitman fired the shotgun at him. Oh, no. Whitman continued to shoot as, as the families ran back down the stairs. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. Mark Gabor and his Aunt Marguerite Lamport died almost instantly. Michael and his mother, Mary, were permanently disabled. Oh, so they all got shot as yeah. they were running away? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. The first shots from the tower's outer deck came at approximately 11.48 a.m. Oh, a history gosh. professor was the first to phone the Austin Police Department after seeing several students shot in the South Mall Gathering Center. It's always the history professors that save the day. Many others had dismissed the rifle reports, not realizing there actually was gunfire. Like, oh. they just assumed it was something else. Cause yeah, because why would it be? Yeah, you just wouldn't assume you it. You wouldn't. Eventually, the shootings caused panic. Now you would assume it. Now Maybe. almost anywhere. I think it would take, I think it would still take a like, no, that can't be gunshots. Well, we live, where we live, there's a lot of wooded areas where there's hunters. Yeah. So. Maybe. I hear gunshots a lot. And I'm like, uh, I guess they're just shooting a deer. Yeah. I guess that's what that is. But wouldn't you just assume that's all it is if you heard it? Oh, that, somebody's just shooting here, a deer. Out here in the woods, but out on college campus nowadays, yeah. I'd be like, oh, yeah. mass shooting. Yeah, that's true. Where's the alert? So eventually the shootings caused panic as news spread, and after the situation was understood, all active police officers in Austin were ordered to the campus. Other off-duty officers, sheriff's deputies, and Texas Department of Public Safety officers also converged on the area to assist. Once Whitman began facing return gunfire from authorities, he used the water spouts on each side of the tower as loopholes, which allowed him to continue shooting largely protected from the gunfire below, which had to, which had grown to include civilians who had brought out their personal firearms to assist police. So now all these peop- extra people are coming out with their own guns, yeah. and they're all helping the police now. So there's all these people shooting at the tower. Like other... Like civilians. I don't understand what you said about loopholes. I'm not sure either. It's oh. He somehow used the water spouts on each side of the tower, which helped him be protected from the gunfire. I don't know. what. The, I'm not sure. I wonder if he was exactly like, did he shoot at him to make water come out so that yeah, they could see? Or what? So Ramiro Martinez, an officer credited with neutralizing Whitman's threat, later stated in his book that the civilian shooters should be credited as they made it difficult for Whitman to take careful aim without being hit. Police okay. Lieutenant and Sharpshooter Marion Lee reported from a small airplane that there was only one sniper firing from the parapet. So before this, they didn't know how many people were up there shooting. Right. But the now the Sharpshooter has confirmed it's just one. The plane circled the tower trying to get a shot at Whitman until it came under fire and was forced to retreat. Whitman's choice of victims was apparently indiscriminate. Yeah. Most of them were shot on Guadalupe Street, a major commercial and business district across from the west side of the campus. Oh, man. Imagine just people just falling down. Efforts to reach the wounded included an armored car and ambulances run by f- local funeral homes. Oh. Ambulance driver Maurice Hockman was responding to victim on West 23rd Street when he was shot in, the la- in a leg artery. Oh, no. Poor guy. Another, guy. I'm sure, an artery. Oh. Another ambulance driver quickly attended to Hoffman. I think it's pronounced ambulance. Oh, okay. Ambulance. Wambulance. Bambulance. Bambulance. Who was then taken about 10 blocks south to, of UT to Brackenridge Hospital and the only local emergency room. The Brackenridge administrator declared an emergency and medical staff raced there to reinforce the on-duty shifts. Following the shootings, queues of, at both Breckenridge and the Travis County Blood Bank stretched for blocks as people hurried to donate their blood. Oh, yeah. Police officer Connor and DPS agent Cowan remained inside the university to cover the windows on the southeast and northeast sides of the reception area. Meanwhile, three other officers took hastily deputized citizen Alan Crum up towards the observation deck. So they deputized they a deputized citizen. His ass. Martinez and McCoy, armed respectively with a 38 revolver and a shotgun, went out on the observation deck proceeded to the northeast corner of the deck and spotted Whitman seated on the floor of the northwest corner, watching the southwest corner for any signs of police. Oh, so they're man. behind him. Yeah. 
Which of the officers actually killed Whitman has been disputed because they both say that it was them. Right. McCoy fired his shotgun twice, and Martinez fired six rounds from his revolver before taking the shotgun and approaching the limp Whitman and t- firing again point blank. Yeah. Day then took the green towel that Whitman had brought with him and waved it to those below, indicating the sniper had been killed. Although Whitman had been Whitman had requested cremation in his suicide note, that was not carried out. Whitman and his mother shared a funeral service. Yeah, you don't get you don't get what you want in that. Due to his status as a former Marine, he had a casket draped with an American flag for his burial really? on Section 16 of the Hillcrest Memorial Park in West Palm Beach, Florida. Huh. Together with the Watts riots of the early 1960s, Charles Whitman's shootings were considered the impetus for establishing SWAT teams and other task force to deal with situations beyond normal police procedures. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. It also led to President Lyndon B. Johnson to call for stricter gun control policies. And and thank God he did that. We know how well that worked out. Yeah. Gun control has really gone well. Yeah. They're completely in control now. After the tragedy, the tower's observation deck was closed for two years, reopened in 1968, However, after several suicides, it was closed again in 1974. Jeez. Oh, okay, we're going to finally reopen it. We think all the violence has passed us. I'm going to go jump off. Not yep. Everybody's killing themselves there. Let's just close it forever. And that is the story of shooter Charles Whitman. Wow. That was good. I'm glad you covered that because uh, I just had like a couple sentences about it. Um, and that was August 1st. Yeah. So that's crazy. Just think of these things so close to each other. I know. With those riots. Because you know the people in Cleveland heard about this. Like, God, we just had all these riots, and now this guy's shooting people in Texas. And At least it wasn't racially the, motivated. Is the end of the world Thank God coming? It yeah, wasn't. at least that one isn't. But it, I guess it would be easy just like now. Like, there's days now where it's just like, is it the end of the world? Like, I everything know. is on fire. It was the same way then. It's always yeah, been this way. It's always way. been this way. We didn't start the fire. Some, we should write a song. Somebody needs to write a song like that. It's always been burning since the world's been turning. It should go something like that. Yeah. We didn't it. start the fire. It's always been burning. Uh, Pope Paul, Malcolm X, British politician sex. Okay. All right. That's Billy Joel. And then August 5th, Caesars Palace Hotel and Casino opens in Las Vegas. Woohoo! Get your tits out. Yep. Get your dick and balls out. And then August 6th, Braniff Airlines Flight 250 crashes in Falls City, Nebraska, killing all 42 on board. Put your balls back in. Yep. Don't uh, get them out right now. They said that that crash, uh, it was such a, it crashed in, uh, let's see, it happened near Falls City, Nebraska. Yeah. And the plane was en route to Omaha from Kansas City, Missouri. 38 passengers and four crew members were killed in the crash, which occurred in a farm field late on a Saturday night. Uh, in-flight structural failure due to extreme turbulence in uh, an avoidable weather hazard was cited as the cause. Oh, they man. said that the pilot could have avoided it if they flew just around the storms, but he went right through the storms for some reason. Oh, geez. Um, that sucks. So, so, it's a bad call. Yeah. Uh, some of the witnesses uh, were like freaked out by it and thought the world was coming to an end and yeah, people rushed to would. the scene to try to save them, but they knew immediately when they saw it that it, there's no survivors. Yeah. It was just all fire and crazy. Um, First Sergeant Rex Jones, the full-time administrator of Falls City's National Guard unit, was returning from his brother's barbecue when he saw the flash. The 30-year-old didn't know what it was, but he knew it was bad. Why would we have to hear about that? <laughs> I don't know. August 7th. 1966, race riots occur in Lansing, Michigan. Jeez. A lot of the same issues with the Huff riot. Yep. Uh, this one didn't get as out of control, but gangs of white kids were getting together looking for fights, and gangs of black kids were indulging them. Yeah. And then August 11th, 1966, the Beatles held a press conference in Chicago, during mm-hmm. which John Lennon apologizes for his more saying than popular than, than Jesus, Jesus. Yeah. remark, saying, I didn't mean it as a lousy anti-religious thing. And then August 16th, uh, the House of Un-American Activities Committee starts investigating Americans who have aided the Viet Cong Mm -hmm. with the intent to make these activities illegal. Mm -hmm. And anti-war demonstrators disrupt the meeting and 50 are arrested. Really? Yep. And that brings us to your next story, but I think we're... It's a little shorty. It's a little shorty. You can do it August 20th, 1966. You'll like this one. Okay. The Face Familiar was on TV. Okay, I, I got this from... Um, Do you know the, what the face familiar is? It was a no. game show where they show parts of somebody's face and the mm-hmm. celebrity contestants have to guess whose face it is. 
Okay, so this is called the lead mask case. The lead? This is just a short little thing. Okay. It's, I got most of this from the lineup.com article by Oren Gray. Oh. I'm going to quote the, the big up top because he had a good beginning of, of it. Lauren Gray is a, a man? Oren Gray. I oh, Oren Gray. Bodies are found every day, often under mysterious circumstances. Most of these discoveries are eventually explained away. Really? Their deaths are the result of foul play or suicide, illness, or accident. But some cases are so strange, they defy explanation. Oh, I'm ready for a strange one. I like weird stuff. Even after all the evidence has been collected, such as the story of Brazil's lead mask case. Mm. On October, October, on August 20th, 1966. Oh, the same day that firecrackers, fruit, and debris were tossed at the Beatles during a concert in Memphis? Yes. A young man was flying a kite on Vinton Hill in the suburb of Rio de Janeiro when he spotted the bodies of two, young, two men farther up the hill. He reported the matter to police who weren't able to reach the bodies until the following day to, due to rough terrain. Okay. So it was real hard to get where these guys were. Okay. When they did arrive, they found a truly bizarre scene. Huh. The two men were stretched out side by side. Huh? Dressed in matching formal suits covered by raincoats. Huh. And, most perplexing of all, lead masks that veiled their eyes. Whoa, like kind of like that. What's that movie with Tom Cruise with the weird sex? Masks. Eyes wide shut? Yeah. So these are lead. Oh, it lead cover, masks. Covering their eyes. Covering their, oh, their eyes. Yeah. Not just like over their heads and eyes, just their eyes. And they, so they can't see. Oh, that's weird, but they're dead. They're dead. And they've got raincoats and suits. While some accounts described these lead masks as the kind used to protect against radiation, other sources indicate they were quite different in design. Okay. Protective masks typically cover the whole head with goggles or enclosed slit, si- sight slits. That's what I was kind of picturing. These homemade masks were more like lead blindfolds that completely covered the eyes but left the rest of the face exposed. Weird. While wearing them, it would have been impossible for the men to see anything. What are they doing? The pa- <laughs> The pair was identified this? as Manol Pereira de Cruz and Miguel Jose Viana. Oh, now I know what's happening. Alongside their bodies, authorities found a water bottle, okay, two wet towels, and wet a notebook. Towels. And a notebook. Oh, what's in the notebook? The notebook contained lists of parts and other information related to their occupations as electronic technicians. Oh. One page, however, contained cryptic instructions that seemed to relate to their mysterious deaths. It said. If they're electronic technicians, the goggles, the lead goggle glass eye cover things must have something to do with it. Yeah, but you can't see anything through them. It's yeah, a blindfold, really. Must be to protect from. So this is what the no- this note said. All right, sixteen thirty, like the time. Yep, that is. Be at the specified 430. location. That's four thirty. Okay. It's four thirty. Be at the specified location. Yep. Eighteen thirty in just capsules. That's eight thirty. All right. At in- okay. Ingest capsules. Oh, like Hydra. After the effect, protect metals, await signal mask. Huh. Await signal mask. Say, say, that, say after, after the, the after effect. The cap, after the effect of the capsule. Protect metals. Protect metals. Metals? Metals. With a T? Yeah. Await signal mask. Huh. That is crazy. The, there was no sign of trauma, no evidence of a struggle, and no obvious cause of death for either of the men. You said no obvious cause of right. death? Right. Huh. In spite of references to ingesting capsules, toxicology reports were not run on the bodies. The reason? According to reports, the coroner was simply overwhelmed with work at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too fucking busy for that. Police, who had no particular reason to suspect foul play, did not push matters. Investigations. Yeah, they didn't know what the hell this was <laughs> even about. Investigations performed by journalists, both professional and amateur, revealed that the men might have been members of a scientific spiritualists collective. The paranormal group was apparently popular among local electronic technicians. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why, why are we laughing about that? The like nerdy the, paranormal group. Well, just that's so specific. Like there's this group of electronic technicians that are all into this paranormal into this group. Paranormal I just cult. think that's funny. One account suggested... I was picturing the Suba friends. Yeah. One account suggested that another technician had died some four years earlier atop a different hill under similar circumstances. What is going on? He, too, was found wearing a lead mask. Must be... 
A friend of the two men claimed that these scientific spiritualists were interested in trying to contact extraterrestrials. That's what I was going to say. It must be something spirits, to do with aliens or... And that they had even constructed a contraption in one member's backyard to facilitate contact. When police searched the homes of the men from Vinton Hill, they found tools, the tools necessary to make their homemade lead masks and huh. a book that contained highlighted passages about the intense luminosity of the entities they hoped to reach. Such expectations of bright light might explain the need for lead eye coverings. Other sources said the spiritualist community would ingest psychedelic drugs to aid in their communication attempts. This has led many to conclude the two men who died on Vinton Hill perished from accidental drug overdoses. Oh, so the pills were probably like Like LSD LSD or something. Adding fuel to the fire of speculation, local newspapers ran stories a few days after the bodies were found in which a resident claimed to see a round orange UFO hovering over the hill on the same night that the men had been there. I believe that. What what the two men hoped to accomplish that night on Vinton Hill will likely never be known. Maybe they left their bodies. Whether their deaths were the result of drug overdoses or contacts with otherworldly, they left behind a mystery as strange as any you'd likely find, and one that baffles skeptics and believers alike to this day. I am baffled, and I would say I am a skeptic and a believer. Yeah. Are you a believer? I am not a believer, although <laughs> uh, he's got a new song out called Yummy. You listen to Kids Bop too much. No, it's not Kids Bop. It's Kids Now. It's, actual kids it's one of those CDs. Now, 48. You know those now CDs? I don't really think those are a thing anymore. But uh, There's like a hundred of them. I find myself liking Justin Bieber songs. And oh, my I, God. I, I like, What's wrong with you? I like everything that the kids like. I'm listening just to know what the kids are going to listen to and who these people are so I can talk intelligently with my kids about Halsey. And and um, I can't. I don't and, know what uh, they're talking about ever. What's the other one? Uh, the one who... Is it bad that I don't know any? No, no, I'm taking care of it for both of us. It's a, okay, good. It's, a, it's the can, hit I'm willing to take. Good. But I'm starting to like some Them. of the stupid music. This, no, uh, I like Lizzo. Well, Lizzo's awesome. You can't not love yeah. Lizzo. I got my hair. All right. But uh, yeah, I know I know Halsey and I know, like, I know the ones that our daughter likes. But And then I have to rein her in sometimes. I was like, nope, can't listen to that. Sorry. That's I'm talking stupid. too much about... They're saying the word cunnilingus. Oh, You're not Jesus. allowed to know what that let's is. Hope not that, oh, let's hope that's not true. Now, some of it is. Like, she had. She asked me. Uh, She's listening to Missy Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> I had to shave my chocha. Uh, what's a shaving your chocha mean? Oh, no. I can't tell her what that is. Anyway, she did ask me what horny means. She's been watching The Office. Oh, God. <laughs> She's oh, God. like, what does horny mean? I think they're horny. Are they horny right now? I'm like, oh. Oh, no. They say in the so office all the time. She's been watching The Office. <laughs> yeah. She has. She's binged The She's Office. She's binging The Office for some reason. But she just wants to see Pam and Jim get together. I know. She doesn't care about what's happening. Yeah. Well, now she doesn't that get any of the jokes. I don't know why she's watching it. She doesn't get any. She has no idea what they're talking about. I, I think that. sometimes she gets the jokes because she'll laugh at some stuff Dwight does and yeah, stuff. Quite silly. All right, should we finish August? Yeah, I, let's get it moving. I don't know if we'll finish it. We but, won't. We can stop. You want to stop? Uh. Yeah, you know what? Who cares about the end of the month? Because. This has been long. Yeah, I think we've been here for a long time. Let's have me get out of here, Chuck Berry. Yeah, let's say. just get out of here, Chuck Berry. Those are that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is. sorry if we talked about it too much. August twenty fourth, the Doors recorded their self titled LP. Okay, I got that one done. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll pick up at that again. We'll pick up next time with the Doors recording their self titled LP. Yeah, called the Doors. Dun, 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 dun. And basically, all I'm going to do is tell you. I used to love the doors. Like, yeah, everybody does when they're on drugs, when they yeah. go through their drug period. I've never left my drug period. <laughs> oh, geez, hey, everybody. Hello. Uh, anyway, pew, pew, pew. thanks for listening. Amy is a drug addict, y'all. She'll take any drugs you got. Send them in the mail. Put them in the mail and send them to us. Get your history for jerks. Get your dicks out. Send us drugs. Bath salts are what Send us pictures of your dick and balls. Send us pictures. Send us dick pics on Twitter, y'all. Just kidding. We don't want dick no, pics. No, please don't. Nipple pics? No, I don't. No. One time I was in an improv troupe and we had some computer nerds who knew how to code on the internet and they made a a website and they took a picture of all of our nipples. And, That's disgusting. And you could, guess, you could try to guess whose nipple was whose. I think I remember that. Yeah. They were men's nipples. So. Where, where was that from? Where were you? It was in Chicago. 
I want you to improv guys. Matt, That's right. Uh, Matt. Uh, uh, I can't remember his last name. I can't remember the names. I could, I could pick <laughs> your nipples Jay. out of a The guys lineup. who like swing dancing, they were also good at computers. I could pick, I could pick your nipples out of a lineup. Okay. Yeah. You see them a lot? Yeah. I say that there's this right nipple, there's this left nipple. Thanks for not touching them. Nobody asked me. And Nobody thank you, time heads, for not touching our nipples. Thanks for listening, Brent Nelson. You're a beautiful man. <laughs> Up yours, everybody. Guys, I'm Barry. Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band in America. And you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. And the wind so tired of hearing about the 60s. One more time, I said, we're so tired of hearing about the 60s. Well, make me shut my mind. of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Samantha, Samantha, that's a hickey.